You're listening to Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And today we have another great author chat for you. This time we're talking with Judy I. Lin, the author of The Book of Tea Duology, A Magic Steeped in Poison, and the recently released A Venom Dark and Sweet. Um, they are a series of Asian-inspired YA fantasy surrounding a magic that's based around the art of tea and features all sorts of uh, palace intrigue, wuxia, and xinxia action. And man, I had a lot of fun reading this book. I'm super excited that we got to speak with Judy. Um, this has been a book that's been on our list um, for a while now because it made a quite a splash when the first book came out late last year. Yeah, I knew that this was Marvin's jam ever <laughs> since I like read the premise because it's a competition story. The first book is because you have all of these tea makers uh, traveling to the Imperial City to compete and the winner will receive a favor from uh, the royal. And I was like, Marvin loves Top Chef so much. <laughs> so I feel and he loves genre like Asian fantasies. I'm like, this is his this is his book. It, it checks a lot of my boxes. It has Asian inspired fantasy. It's fantasy in general, which I love. It has um it has magical tea. And you we all know I love a good milk tea. And you know, the first book surrounds a magical tea tournament, which you know, the tournament arcs are always the best arcs in any series or anime, right? Yeah, I love seeing like puzzles and challenges. Like <laughs> I love escape rooms, so I just love it when books have riddles and, and and challenges for the protagonist to compete. And the second book came out so quickly after the first book release, so we were able to read it back to back and I was just so grateful that I already had the second book. That first book ends that, in a gnarly cliffhanger. So Yeah, that cliffhanger is just <laughs> I'm I feel so bad for those of you who had to actually wait for <laughs> the second book to come out. But I had a lot of fun reading it. The second book expands more on the world of Dashi. And we see gods. We have different perspectives. And uh, yeah, it was just so much fun to read. It was very immersive. And um, yeah, I'm excited to share our chat with Judy. Yeah, we had a lot of fun talking to her about her inspirations, how she came up with her magical tea system, her research. And it's just um, it was just a really fun chat. So yeah, let's get right to it. Please enjoy our author chat with Judy I. Lynn. And we are here with Judy Eileen, uh, the author of A Magic Steeped in Poison and A Venom Dark and Sweet. Um, welcome to the show, Judy. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. Um, congratulations on finishing your first series, I guess, your first series of books. Um, how do you feel? Tired, but um, <laughs> really happy. Yeah, really happy that it's, it, yeah, it's out in the hands of readers and uh, it feels like it's been 
a long time coming, but then everything happened really fast after the first book um, launched. Congratulations on reaching the New York Times bestsellers list again, because your first book reached number one, I think, and then this book reached number three. Yes, I think that was very, it was pretty exciting, pretty surprising, but um, yeah, just so thrilled that um, yeah, people are very receptive to um, the books. Um, just because it was so specific, I felt like I've always been told that the books are very niche. So it's happy to see that it's reaching a wide audience. I think, yeah, we can probably talk more about that because um, that's always been the case for especially like Asian inspired fantasy. It's like everyone says it's niche because it's such a it's a you know, it's based on stories that the mainstream aren't familiar with. But honestly, mm-hmm. like. It's not like we haven't seen a story about adventures and a grand tournament before. Um, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's always frustrating to hear people like call this type of story niche when it's really not. It's like these themes are universal. Like these adventure and fantasy themes are, are books that we grew up reading. And yeah, I definitely agree. Cause I mean, I, I try to write blending all the things that I love. Like I, that's why you see the the competition, um, <laughs> and you see the different types of like magic that's involved. Because I grew up reading a lot of um, fantasy stories that have these elements, but then um, I wanted to incorporate some of the things. Yeah, like you said, I like I grew up with too all the myths and legends that are very very familiar to me as well. Like the, the that's the two. It's not even two sides of me. It's like all combined into one. So to incorporating it, it felt very natural to me. So it yeah, that's <laughs> why um, it's very surprising that um, when people say, oh, it's might be difficult to reach an audience with this type of story when um i mean there's asian people can enjoy it but there's no reason why like um other people can't enjoy it either if i need to read another tale inspired by the war of the roses they can read another story inspired by court drama and musha it's like it's got to go both ways right but um (laughs) speaking of you know being on the bestsellers list um something that um again it's a very basic asian american question but we are an asian american um asian diaspora podcast um we always want to know were your parents supportive were they skeptical and did that turn around once you got listed as a bestseller well my parents are very traditional taiwanese (laughs) parents so um when i was writing um in like in junior high and high school, that was always seen as a, a hobby, right? You would do that on the side, but that can't be what your main profession is. So that's They always encouraged me to go to a profession that um, pays better. And, I, and back then too, um, as a teen, there weren't that many Asian American authors. Like there were not, there, there certainly weren't many that were hitting like, the bestseller list or um or even very prominent on the shelves so to them because they don't they they are not able to see those examples that is doesn't seem to be uh, a profession worth pursuing unfortunately <laughs> um and so that's why i actually went into um like uh, cell biology and then i uh, went into healthcare. Um, but I always kept, I still uh, like went into creative writing classes. I wrote a lot of poetry. And then it wasn't until after I graduated um, from university um, with um, my master's in occupational therapy and I started working um, in healthcare that I had time then in the evenings to go back to writing and um, 
and then just rediscover my love for it again. So that's where kind of led to um, the two books coming out now and my parents' reception. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, I mean, they, they don't read a lot of young adult fantasy. So to, <laughs> so to them, they're like, we'll, we'll wait. Hopefully you'll get a Chinese translation. That's what they're waiting for. It's like for. you give them a copy of your book and they're like, okay, we're going to put this on our bookshelf. And, yes. you know, like it's there for display, but they're not going to crack it open. I mean, have you been picked up by like the world news or like the Chinese papers yet? I think that's when parents really like notice yeah. when like they get sent articles by their friends. Like, is this your daughter on the um, the Sujilu ball or whatever? Yeah, no, unfortunately. Yeah, I definitely knew those like Chinese newspapers <laughs> you find in Chinatown. Um, I, I think that would definitely make them um, more receptive <laughs> to the book. But I mean, they're, they're very supportive. They're like um, very, very happy for me. And then, of course, they share it with all their friends like oh this look at what my daughter did but i i they just they don't that's not their interest and they don't pay attention to it so um but my i mean but my sister really (laughs) is my biggest fan and she's very supportive so in terms of like family support like my sister is my number one she goes to the bookstore and like takes photos of my books and buys a (laughs) bunch of copies for her friends so i love it i love it (laughs) Um, so I did some digging and please don't freak out, but I found out that you're a gamer, that you used to play Dragon Age and Mass Effect and, uh, that helped you, uh, go into fan fiction writing and, uh, practice your craft. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So that, that was when I was like first starting out in my professional career and then, um, just I, I got really into video games at that time just because it's like a way to decompress after um, working all day. And it's I just love this type of storytelling in those games. That's that's the type of um, video games that I enjoy the most. It's just when they have like really interesting relationships and character choices and then it kind of develops um, your your character that way and, the, and affects the storyline. So th- those are the types of games that I love. And, um, and because of the way that Dragon Age Origins is um, written, it's just, you have so many um, original characters that you can um, follow along with the storyline. So that's where I found it really freeing to write in that world, just because you have an established world, but then you have the freedom to develop the characters that are presented in there. And of course, with the multiple storylines, you can kind of go off and um, and make the story your own as well. And that, that was a lot of fun for me um, just because it, it, it kind of opened up the, a new world that I can write in and also um, work together with um, other people in the fandom. And because, I mean, fandom people are, are great. They always like comment on your posts. They love those ships. And and then that's really, really encouraged. That was really encouraging to, to me as a getting back into um writing just because you get that instant gratification right of the likes and the comments and and so that that really worked on um developing my craft in those um early days of writing yeah in my opinion still the best dragon age of the three (laughs) dragon age origins yeah Um, yeah i mean like when we when when we think about like fantasy worlds and writing like we usually think of like what like lord of the rings and um like Game of Thrones, but you know, like 
like we said earlier, it's not like people can't can't understand uh, court dramas and like um, Asian myths. Um, so I have to ask, like, do you have any sea dramas that helped you uh, like go into the world of the Book of Tea? Any inspirations from there? Um, I always, I feel like I say this a lot, but I mean, Nirvana and Fire is still my number it's one top sea drama <laughs> of all times. Even like so many years later, I still watch it like, once a year and then sometimes when I want to go into those moments I would play like the YouTube clips of the scenes just because it is it the storyline was so interesting like the once again the relationships in the drama are uh, are really meaningful and and of course I love the politics and the intrigue and um how the twists and turns of the story kind of played out um so that uh, I just think it's it's still one of the best dramas out there uh, for me. And then for, in terms of um, focusing on the tea, actually it's, I watched the story of Ming Lan during that time as well, when I was writing, because there is a focus on um, tea brewing and some of the ceremonies in the story, um, but it's very, very um, family focused story. So that, that I was also really interested and in, inspired by so th- those are the two dramas I would say that were the most influential when I was uh, writing the, the duology. Yeah. Speaking of tea, how hands-on were you in your research of like the different teas? Because, you know, um, when most people think of tea, they think of like, you know, your uh, your jasmines or like your mm-hmm. the tea you have at tea time. But then for, for Chinese people, uh, I can only speak for Chinese people. Um, <laughs> Many things can be tea. Flowers can be tea. I mean, type of leaves, and you know, especially the tea leaves. Like, um, I have, I had a friend who got really into tea making, and so she was explaining to me like how like all the different types of tea are all the same leaf. It's just prepared in different ways. And that is to say, I know that the the world of tea is vast and deep. So, like, how how deep did you go into your research? Yeah, to be honest, like when I grew up um, drinking tea, I just like it was just something that you do every day right like I didn't really think about it that much and it's just like you would I would visit my parents and then my dad would be like here let's hear some oolong tea and he would brew it but um yeah it was really when I was researching and developing the story that I started becoming um like really um diving into um the the type of ceremony and the type of tea leaves and and it's it's just opens up this very very like interesting world of like competition teas and like people who would um buy these very very expensive teas and um and they would argue about like what's the best type of teapot to brew it in and then they would all have every region has like their very specific preferences so i mean that is all so fascinating uh, to me and i wish like there were so many details i wish i could include in the story but it just I just didn't have enough <laughs> space to explore that further. But I did travel back to Taiwan um, to do the research um, and go and visit a tea farm. Mm-hmm. And that was so much fun to actually see how it's being produced. I mean, now it's every day. It's, it's like most of it is all um, machine prepared, um, all the roasting and preparing. But um just to be able to see it and like to walk through the tea trees on the farm and to um, like sit down and then taste the different preparations of what I just 
saw them pick and and then also to um, see how they add the different flowers to the teas and and how depending on the type of flower it would um, they would do different types of preparations of how it's incorporated so all of that was just so much fun and um, and I think helped me really um, be in, like immerse myself in the experience and understand um, how the living on a tea farm um, would feel like for um, for Ning in the story. Yeah, people who love tea really love tea. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing with fandom, um, <laughs> Marvin. People who are really into things are really into things, and there's always a community yeah, to help I, foster that passion. Yeah, I would buy the behind the scenes Judy Island journey into tea um like <laughs> supplement to to uh to the book of like tea a, like a cookbook like a catalog <laughs> or like just, a, just like a travel log <laughs> like a travel vlog maybe yeah start a youtube channel and like do like asmr tea like making <laughs> um but we got a little bit ahead of yourself ahead of ourselves um can you tell us a little bit about your journey to publication because i remember when we announced your book deal Magic Steeped in Poison, that wasn't the original title. It was uh, Heart of Severed Leaves, right? Yes, yes that's right. Yeah, that feels like so long ago. I know, but... it's publishing. I, <laughs> yeah. Time moves differently. Yeah, so um, I actually I actually started seriously pursuing publication back in tw- end of 2015. So it was like even longer before that. Because um, I wrote... Um, my first manuscript, um, it was actually a young adult horror set in Taiwan. Oh. And um, I entered it into Pitch Wars, um, which is a, a mentorship um, program that was on, around on Twitter back then. And um, and that was through the revising with my mentors. That was how I got my agent. But unfortunately, that manuscript didn't sell. So then it was um, just the couple of years Later, I just kept um, working on different ideas. I auditioned for a couple of things, but um, then I started working on um, what would become the the Book of Tea project, and um, and it was yeah. I went through a couple of rounds of revision with my agent and with some early readers, and um, but it still took a little while because back then, um, I mean, I think the fantasy genre people were saying it was getting so saturated and um but of course (laughs) you hear that but that was when like a lot of authors of color were getting their fantasy stories like finally um being um recognized and um and becoming more popular so i mean it's really disheartening as a as like an asian author to hear that um but i mean we we ended up selling the project and of course it um with a lot of other asian fantasies doing really well in the market now um so it's just really great to to see that being proven wrong and um and yeah and then here we are today yeah did you always plan it to be a duology um i mean i remember us hearing a lot of buzz about the first book, Magic Steep and Poison, when it came out, you know, it got listed on bestsellers list. Everyone was talking about, we're like, oh, we should read that at some point. And then all of a sudden there's a sequel. Like we got <laughs> like half a year later. Yeah, the turnaround time was very tight. I was like, <laughs> yes. whoa, she wrote that book real fast. 
Yes. So when we originally sold it, yeah, it was on a like a more traditional publishing timeline. So it would be like this: the first book would come out, and then the second book would come out a year later. But um, my editor and my um, imprint wanted to try something um, a little bit different in releasing um, the two books closer together, um, just because then um, readers can pick it up quicker. They can buy the two books together, so they don't have to wait um, and um, finish to finish off the duology. So I ended up writing, uh, because the, the first book sold on proposal, so I only had the first few chapters written. So I had I was given more time at that time anyway to finish out um, the first book. So then um, it's just then the second book timeline kind of got more crunched in um, following that. So I kind of, I was revising the first book while I was drafting the second book. And um, it was <laughs> not going to lie very stressful during that time. But um, I think it ended up being a better for the story because I could still go back to the first um, book and make some of those little revisions of things, um, details that I included in the second book. So um, overall, I think it actually improved the flow of the story and then um and i ended up being able to tell the story in a co more cohesive way um and as was my original um goal yeah i mean as someone who was not very patient i appreciate the quick turnaround because then i can you know i didn't have to wait a year or two to find out what happens to to all these characters so uh thank you i hope the experiment went well um because um i mean i guess it was stressful for you, but it was definitely um, gratifying for me. <laughs> Instant gratification. <laughs> yes. Um, so in the in the Book of Tea, uh, you have this magical tea system. You have the Shenang Tu who are able to, I guess, um, like when we think of East Asian inspired fantasies, we see like Wuxia and Shangsha, right? Mm -hmm. Like military combat, like that's what comes to mind. But uh, with the Shanong too, it's it it's tea. Like they their weapon is drinking tea and mm -hmm. kind of um, kind of shifting into dreams dreamscapes and whatnot. And I thought that was a very unique uh, type of magic. Uh, can you tell us a little bit? about how you came up with that magical system? Um, because when I first started um, working on the project, I, I knew tea magic was going to be at the center of the story. So that that was what I needed to develop first before I got into any anything else with the plot or the characters. So in working with that, I knew that um, it wasn't going to be uh, a combat-based magic system. Because <laughs> what are you going to do? Like throw the tea into somebody's face? Um, they have to drink it, and then you have to have the time to prepare it and to and to utilize um, the magic um, on them or um, affect the wh whoever you're trying to affect. So that was why I wanted to. I needed to really consider what that type of magic would look like. Like if if it was, should have. It already has certain limitations from the start in terms of accessing the ingredients and then being able to have access to water. Um, so that that was really um, fun to come up with the different types of of magic that's present and showcased throughout um, the first book in the competition rounds. So that that was my focus, and that's why I chose the competition um, so that I can feature these different preparations of tea in the story, and also that. Um, 
ups the intensity because if you're just going to have a book about brewing and uh, tea, that's very relaxing. But there wasn't very there wouldn't be very much um, plot to to kind of forward the story. So that's why um, the competition um, aspect was very um, important to me to to be able to demonstrate this. And then I think. Um, in the second book, I wanted to take that even further because in a competition round, you're in the beautiful palace. You're you're you have access to the vessels, the 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 hot water, and all and probably all the very high end ingredients. But in second book, when we are um, journeying through the empire, Ning doesn't have access to any of that. So what would those type of brews look like? So then that was more fun to play around with with how tea brewing would take on different dimensions um, in that. Um, in, in the sequel as well. But of course, when I was writing, I couldn't resist adding in some of the martial arts elements. So that's why you'll see, you'll see some of those um, very common Usha tropes, like running across the rooftops and like assassins coming in at nighttime. And so, and like being ambushed in the back alley, like all those things are very common in Wuxia. So I, I had to write that into the story. Um, you in, in the second book, you go outside of the palace and you see more of the world of uh, Dashi in the sequel. Um, and I just want to ask, like, where, did you base any of the fictional towns and regions uh, on real places? Like, what was it like unfurling the map of uh, Dashi? Um, so... I think Taiwanese people will recognize because <laughs> some of the locations, because I've already had people who lived in Taiwan or are, are from Taiwan who already messaged me saying like, this sounds familiar. <laughs> Where did you try it from? So definitely um, for naming anyway, uh, I did draw upon some of the names um, for the places, m- mostly from Taiwan, because that was just um, a-, a lot of fun to to include those little bits and uh, and also from a lot of um Usha stories too some of the names are kind of plays on different like famous Usha um locations that are are common um in those stories so it it was a bit from drawing from, from literature and a drawing from my um own um background of neighborhoods and the towns that I grew up in uh a magic steep and poison it's written in Ning's uh, POV, but the second book, um, Venom, Dark and Sweet, it's written in two POVs. You have mm-hmm. Ning's and you have Kong's. And um, how was it just writing in a different uh, POV? And also, you write in third person for uh, Kong's POV. So you're switching from first person to third person. So how was changing um, your writing style into that? Uh, I I really enjoyed it um, because at first the first draft of the sequel it was only Ning's POV but it was it just felt like something was missing so then my editor was like well why don't you put in Kong's POV because there's a lot of the story that we're not able to see when it's just from Ning's POV and that made a lot of sense to me um, but I was I was I was playing around with writing Kong's um, perspective it just felt like. Um, I, I wanted it to be distinguished from Ning's perspective for one and also for a lot of the second book like he's he's very confused and probably a little terrified of all the things that are happening around him that he doesn't understand so I wanted to make sure that the reader experienced that as well so to putting a little bit more of a distance between um, him and the rest of the the court around him. So that's, that's why I felt like the third person perspective was, um, 
was the most effective in getting that across. So it was very intentional in how I wrote it. And and, and I know for some readers that transition is a little bit um, jarring, but I did want that. Um, it was a purposeful decision as an author to have that sort of separation. And I think the first person POV2 maintaining that for names is really important because ultimately it is still her story. So it's still her journey in the end that we're following. Um, having Kong's um, perspective just adds a little bit um, of of background information and um, insight of the other going-ons in the Empire that Ning wouldn't have um, access to. Yeah, I mean, the scope of your the sequel is so much grander than the first book, where the first book mainly took place in the palace during a tournament. And the second book takes place across the entire empire. And the scope of the conflict extends past politics to like myths. And were these aspects, were these um, like a story building aspects, were they already, did you already have like a, an idea of like what your world was or did you have to build it for the second book as well? Um, I had an uh, idea of what I wanted it to look like, um, because it it is modeled um, after. Like my my inspiration was always uh, the Song Dynasty of Imperial China, but I also didn't want it to be an exact replica. So there's some historical um, sites and locations that might seem a little bit familiar, um, but it, it's not. Yeah, this, it definitely was not meant to be an exact replica because I I kind of put in a couple of the the different um, details of that I I wanted to include um, just because. Once again, returning to like the Usha inspirations, I wanted to have um, like some scenes that occur in in certain like monasteries and in some scenes in like of the bamboo forest. So th- those are some of the 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 details that I wanted to add um, to the story. So then just figuring out um, what would make sense to in terms of the travel and the timeline, because those are all the things I I don't know. I guess I just never thought about. <laughs> before writing it that a fantasy author has to figure out like how long would it actually take to travel on horseback from between this distance um, or between these places if there are these geographical features so that actually took a lot of time to to figure out and um, which is why I really wanted a map in the second book Um, but I didn't get my map so that's and and that's why I commissioned um, a map so that I could give that out to my readers for my pre-order campaign. I actually flipped to the beginning of the book to see if there was a map. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. where, where's the map? I know. I just, I thought, I mean, maps are always really important in fantasy books, I feel. But for the second book, I just felt it was like so necessary to kind of understand the layout mm. of Dashi. But sadly, it did not come to be so. Now, but now you can look at the map. Um, I should put it on my website. That's a good reminder. I should put the map on my <laughs> website. <laughs> um, uh, one of the relationships I really liked uh, that you expand on in the second book is Princess Shen and her bodyguards, Rui's uh, sapphic relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the first book, you kind of get like a glimpse of it. But in the second book, it's very, very much like expanded. You kind of see the love that they share is is very sweet and the loyalty that they have for each other is very, very, um, it's like, it's very romantic. Uh, it was really nice to see how normalized that relationship is because uh, when we think of like East Asian inspired fantasies and court dramas, there is a lot of like misogyny and mm-hmm. and a lot of like homophobic, like underlying um, commentary. And, you know, like, of course, 
the the female characters in your book they do face like sexism, but I feel like most of the inequality comes from like uh, economic and regional uh, biases. So um, can you talk about like how you decided to include Jen and Rui's uh, sapphic relationship into the book, and how did it add to the story? So I, I knew that um, one thing I wanted to write was because um, in a traditional fantasy, some like the the commoner going to the the palace and like falling in love with a the prince is like s- such a common <laughs> trope in in a fantasy or even a fairy tale story. So um, I wanted to kind of play on that. So I wanted, uh, and I mean, in the court dramas that I watched once, like it's always about like these various princes fall like fighting each other, but the princesses are just married off, right? They're just like married off to a d- different kingdom for alliances. But I wanted to uh, a story where the princess um isn't married off that that she is the heir but there's um other reasons why she that would affect her ascendancy to the the throne so i i really want to have that aspect but i'm really really a sucker for the like the bodyguard type of trope i just love romance between like <laughs> the the bodyguard and the person they're supposed to protect and um and so it just felt really natural to write um, Rui as um, the the handmaiden slash bodyguard to the princess who's been very loyal and at her, um, her side, um, but also to incorporate yeah that that kind of romantic trope, and um, and I thought it would be interesting too where Ning like in in what you would expect is for her to fall in love with the prince but then there is this princess and the princess is actually in, in love with somebody else so there's that's that's not a, a route that she's able to go down and i also wanted to portray it like a a very um strong queer relationship that's that's not not in in question like it's not there's like no other interferences like she, and and I don't think that's my type of story to write either because I'm I'm not I don't I'm not in a queer relationship. So I wanted to just portray one that's very positive and one that is um that that is yeah, once again not not in question and also one that um is I was inspired by the old guard <laughs> the movie where it's like these uh, I guess you would call them immortals um that just love each other and their 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 the power of their love is and their relationship is very strong throughout time so that was kind of my inspiration um when it came to that um with them they're pairing and um and i guess the final thing i wanted to say too is that um like queer relationships have been in like historical china like that's that's not in question it's just certain time periods and certain like um philo- like philosophies have changed that but it was once accepted. So, I mean, it is historically um, r- accurate as well to include these types of relationships in the story. Yeah, and, you know, they weren't the only queer relationship. Your, your book is full of queer relationships. And it was really cool to see it being normalized in this world and something that no one really calls out. Something else that, you know, I noticed as like a Taiwanese Chinese person is that the language that your fantasy world uses mm-hmm. is... Mandarin Chinese and you do use you know those forward idioms and like um you do have actual like Chinese wording in your in your book as well um I mean can you tell us about the decision to use 
Chinese as like the language uh, of your world. That that was like days upon days of agonizing <laughs> over like what should I include? Should I include the characters? Should I include the tone marks? Um, should I be translating the idioms or some of the references, or should I like write them out and in in Chinese characters? So that that was. I wanted to make sure that the book is accessible, but I also wanted to make sure that I pay tribute to um, the influences um, and they and put them in kind of as um, I guess there would be Easter eggs for people um, who are familiar with those um, legends and those idioms would would be able to see and refer to but also once again with a twist and not an exact replica because that's not what my attention is like once again i didn't want to replicate like imperial china (laughs) that like that was not that was not my goal so i just wanted to it to to look and sound and feel like like a wuxia or xianxia um story where you can um see these familiar things to people who are um who grew up in the culture um but then um to to change it a little bit and so that's why i really wanted to make sure that everything that i mentioned in the that i had reference to in pinyin was actually um i tried to include the the chinese characters in the glossary as well because that was really important to me um just because like in Taiwan, we don't learn pinyin. We learn from like Bobomofo. So I had the Chinese characters first, and then I had to actually translate it into pinyin to include it into the story. So um, I put in a lot of effort in being into yeah, finding the idioms and, and naming the places and the characters. So I wanted to to share that too with people who readers who are interested in that as well. So um so that was, yeah, a lot of decision making as to why, um, yeah, why I would make the choices of whether it's pinyin, whether it's ca- the characters, and and um, and whether it's the translations. Uh, yeah, your main character Ning is just so strong and so like I, I like that she is always proactive, even though she's like riddled with mm-hmm. guilt and self doubt. I, I loved seeing her journey as she, you know becomes confident in herself throughout the first book and then goes on her grand journey in the second yeah, the one. first book the first book is like her being like oh my gosh i'm an imposter and kind of having this imposter syndrome <laughs> and the second book is like her actually coming to uh terms with her power being like okay i'm actually really good at this so <laughs> it was really nice to see that uh arc definitely in the second book. <laughs> yeah i guess um can you tell us a little bit about just how you how you came up with that character, like what inspired um, your the main uh, character of your book. So I wanted to um, write a story where um, Ning is feeling very guilty because of um, what happened to her. Like, I mean, this isn't a spoiler because it happens in the first chapter, like accidentally poisoning um, <laughs> her mother, and then that kind of sets her on this. Um, journey in order to atone for that by saving her her sister so that that was the the idea of family is always a very strong um driving force in the stories that i write um and i think that's that's just i mean my opinion part of like the taiwanese culture being raised in that sort of household where the, the the those stories are always present um but of course there's always that um Maybe this is more of a diaspora um, conflict in that you are trying to um, 
respect your parents, but also find your own way. So that kind of journey is present um, in in her travels as well. And just in terms of leaving home in order to discover who you are, but in the process of leaving home, um, learning more about your family and learning more about where you came from and appreciating that and, and also seeing your parents as different like that they are they have their own story and their own journeys that happened before you were even born so that that was kind of what I wanted to um explore as um as I was writing Ning's story and in in the first book anyway and yes and then the second book is really about her um yeah coming into herself and then being able to um embrace what she had once rejected and then being able to um to take on um, that it's no longer about herself and her family and that it, it is a, a more of a responsibility and weight of the the effects of the the poison across the entirety of Dashi. So um, so it, in, in a sense, it, it is like the, the story is these two pieces and um, and that's where I, why I chose very um, purposefully of where I ended the first book, even though some people were very upset at me about the cliffhanger. But I wanted I think that was a very pivotal <laughs> moment in how the story shifts um, in, in terms of Ning's journey. Yeah. I mean, the stakes are already pretty high in the first book and get so much higher in the second and one. Like, I definitely <laughs> got the diaspora feels from Kong's point of view as well, because he has like this huge expectation from his father and he and he really idolizes his father too but um you know he is coming to terms with like okay maybe like my father is like not as perfect and golden as I I thought he was and learning how to make like his own decisions and dealing with the consequences of his own decisions I was like okay I see (laughs) I see the uh I, I see the diaspora pressure and um, just, you know, like wanting to please your parents, but at the same time trying to walk your own path. So I kind of saw that parallel with uh, Ning and uh, Kong's story. <laughs> yeah, because in, in the, they are very, very, they're, they are similar in that um, they can truly relate to each other because of all these different pressures. And then um, just in, in terms of how they deal with that, um, it, it, is, it, it is different in how they, they, they come together and then apart um, in, in the story. So that was really interesting to, to play with, um, especially because I, I wouldn't have been able to do that in, in the first book without the dual POV. So, so that, that was definitely a way to get insight into why Kong made the decisions he did in the first book and then the after effects of that. Yeah, I just want these kids to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God, the pining is real. Um, <laughs> um, but we're winding down to the end of our interview. And I think we would be remiss to like not mention the gorgeous covers of your books because that's they're definitely eye catching. So can you tell us a little bit about like, I don't know, did you have any input into your covers? I know that's rare for authors. Like what was your reaction when you saw uh, the cover designs? So my, the illustrator is Sija Hong and she is amazing. Um, I, I did have um, like I could 
I sent my editor some information about like the the different elements that were present in the book, like the flowers and then the the fish and 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 of course the the I did send some um, reference materials to what the tea set would look like, but um, it was really the, the yeah the the designer um, Rich Diaz and um, and then. The, Sija coming together and creating these beautiful uh, pieces of art really like in my opinion just because they're so gorgeous and then when I received the the full because it's actually a whole scroll like if you un- pull out the covers for the first book and pull out the covers for the second book it actually all connects together into a, a, a full a piece of art so oh, that when i saw that it was like so amazing so you can yeah you can actually line them up and and you can i'm like you can see where the the pieces line up so that that was like truly mind-blowing like it, it was really amazing to see just how much um, thought they had put into putting um, the covers um, together and of course um, yeah the the colors and um, and wow. what they uh, what they chose in terms of the how the two covers um, like contrast with one another but still have the the common themes so it was I mean I'm not an artist, so like that. That was like this is this this is your domain, and they. I mean, they. It, it was like way beyond my expectations, to be honest. My mind I have is to say, right yeah, like I when I go to bookstores, I see your book, um, like churned out on the shelf because it is the cover is so pretty and really like we we shouldn't judge books by their covers, but we definitely do and they <laughs> help with sales so I've definitely seen um a couple people pick up your book at like Barnes and Noble and local bookstores because the cover looks pretty so I, I hope <laughs> they enjoy the story too because you know don't just buy a book because it's, the cover is pretty but also you know if the cover well, is lucky pretty them, well lucky them the story is great too so yeah. win-win win-win um yes Again, congratulations on completing your duology on the launch of your second book as well. Um, I guess, you know, um, are you sitting back? I know you're doing press and doing all the marketing obligations for your book, but are you working on anything else? Is something? Are you taking a break or are you like back at back at it, back on the grind? Yeah, so I have um, uh, another book in the works, actually. I'm actually on deadline for it, so it's oh, no. very stressful. Um but it is another um, young adult fantasy, but it's not it's not like a continuation of the Book of Tea. It's not set in the same world. It's more actually um, Xianxia uh, world inspired. So a lot of like the celestials and mm. that that type of um, more natural magic. But it's, it's definitely still very, very immersed in like Chinese and Taiwanese mythology. Still lots of, yeah cultural references lots of it'll probably include more Chinese characters and those idioms and those the different types of wordplay on that because that, that's just what I have fun um, with when when I'm writing so um, yeah hopefully I'll get yeah. to announce more details about it um, soon and uh, yeah, excited to share that with readers 
yeah, excited to see where you go. Excited to see, you know, what inspirations you draw from and what, you know, aspects of Chinese culture you suburb. I think it's all, it's all very exciting. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. And that was Judy Island, the author of The Book of Tea Duology, um, A Magic Steep in Poison, and A Venom Dark and Sweet. Both books available now at booksellers everywhere, uh, including the Books and Boba online bookstore. Uh, as always, if you do purchase uh, books from our online bookstore, you do uh, not only do you support your local bookstores, but you also support us at the Books and Boba podcast. So we really appreciate everyone who's been purchasing books from there. Uh, you can check out the bookstore by going to booksandboba.com and clicking on the bookstore link. But yeah, I'm excited that Judy's writing another book. Uh, can't wait to learn more about that. Uh, but as we wait, Rira, please remind us what we're reading for the month of September. Uh, so our September book is You're Invited by Amanda Jayatissa, and it's about a Sri Lankan woman who travels to Sri Lanka to stop her former best friend and her ex-boyfriend from marrying, and there is a disappearance, and there is uh, a supposed murder that she gets accused of. So, fun times. I love murder. I love weddings. This is my jam. I'm very excited to read it. <laughs> yeah, you told me it's been pitched as... Crazy Rich Asians meets Gone Girl, which sounds terrifying. Um, but I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I love the I love the pitch, so I'm very excited to read it. Um, and I think it's a really good book that transitions into Spooky Month. Oh, you know, yeah, this book coming up. Yeah. yeah. All right. We'll be discussing your invited at the end of the month. So if you're reading along or if you have finished the book. Um, please let us know your thoughts on our Goodreads forums. Um, we always love to include feedback from our listeners in our discussion whenever possible. But that'll do it for this uh, episode of Books M. Boba. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks to Judy Eileen for joining us on our podcast. And we will see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books M. Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Asians in Baseball alongside Naomi Ko and Scott Okamoto. Asians in Baseball is exactly what it sounds like. A podcast about the Asian and Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Americans in Major League Baseball. Every week we break down the highlights of what's going on with Asians in Baseball and then take a deeper dive into the Asian and Asian Americans past and present who have shaped baseball as it is today. Whether you're Kim Ang's number one fan or you've never even heard of Hideo Nomo, we've got something for everyone especially for the Shohei Otani stands. Maybe too much for the Shohei Otani stands. Listen to Asians in Baseball wherever you get podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.